This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Marty Makari. Dr. Makari is a surgeon at Johns Hopkins who has pioneered surgical procedures, particularly with regards to pancreatic transplant operations. He is probably the leading medical public intellectual in America today. He developed, among other things, the surgical checklist, which was popularized in Atil Gawande's book, Checklist Manifesto. His book, The Price We Pay, is an astonishing and maddening description of the American healthcare system and how the lack of transparency is costing us a fortune while significantly diminishing the quality of our care. His previous book, Unaccountable, was also a New York Times bestseller and became the basis for the TV series, The Resident. And his advocacy for healthcare reform, trumpeted in The Price We Pay and elsewhere, has led to practical improvements, including the president's price transparency rule covering hospitals, although now the hospitals are suing. He has been a visiting professor at over 30 medical schools, is a commentator on Fox and other TV, and is, through his life-saving work as a surgeon, and through the way he derives insights from his medical practices and extrapolates them so clearly and inarguably to the American public, is a national treasure. And I am proud to call him my friend. Marty, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Great to be with you, Mark. So, Marty, of of all the passages in the Bible to, to choose from, you chose the story of the dove in Genesis 8. So um, if you could just tell us um, what happens in that passage and why it's meaningful to you, uh, that would be a good way to begin. Well, thanks, Mark. And I love this idea of talking mm-hmm. about things that inspire us from the Word of God. You know, it's, it's amazing when we read certain passages, how we connect with them, even though it's been thousands of years. And there's something about this passage that Uh, resonates with me, and I see it in my interactions with patients. I see their light bulbs go off and their their hope. So this is the passage. You know, it was during the the flood lasted about a year or some long period of time, you know, if this is a poetic uh, reference to sort of a broader story of, of the journey of life. It was a long, it was a, it was a rough period, right? Kind of like coronavirus, we're all hunkered down. And so, um, it was a long it was a long period and then at the end this is what it says here the dove they sent out these birds these birds circulated and it said in the, in Genesis 8:11 when the dove returned in the evening there was a break and a freshly plucked olive leaf and Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth and you can almost envision this right you can almost paint this and that's what you know hope this is a message of hope here that's what my patients want when I talk to them. They want to know there's hope. It doesn't necessarily have to be hope of immortality or even living years longer. It's just hope that their family is going to be okay, that they're loved, that the next phase of their medical treatment will be pain-free, hope that they can contribute something by the end of their time on earth. And to be able to get so intimate with people quickly within days or hours or weeks of meeting them for the first time. It's a real privilege in society. So this is when the flood, which you're right, lasts about a year, ends. 
Noah opens the windows of the ark, which he had made. Interesting, because it certainly seems to imply that the windows were not there all along. But at some point on the journey, he made the window, perhaps because he needed to literally or figuratively exhale and to see the world to the extent he could, even though it was a midst of the flood. And then before he sends out the dove, which is beloved for reasons we can discuss, he sends out a raven. So first he sends out the raven, and then he sends out the dove. And the raven is the opposite of the dove in that the, the raven, apparently ra- ravens are known for abandoning their young and eating anything. Hmm. You know, even today, ravens will eat garbage. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know that, but there was a concern evidently from the commentators that the the birds may not return and it may indicate that they landed somewhere, they have no allegiance, they have no loyalty. Maybe it indicated an early glimmer of hope in the sense that there was a place for them to land and, and stay, showing that the floodlines had receded, but not enough where there was enough vegetation where they would think, hey, let's, let me bring a piece of vegetation back to the ark. So many animals we're learning as science matures are so much smarter than we thought, and to recognize they have emotions and feelings, and they mourn when one dies, and they communicate, and they- They mourn? I didn't realize that. They mourn. I mean, there's an incredible video that went viral on um, an elephant losing one, one of their children. And I mean, this is a mourning, pro- this is a grieving that almost mimics that of a funeral where it goes on for days and the sounds and it's just, it's, um, and you realize, you know, all of this is a beautiful work of creation that we have a lot more connectedness with nature than we probably appreciated growing up. You know, I was taught in biology, oh, uh, the mice that we're doing experiments with or the animals, don't worry, they have no feelings totally wrong and completely uh, inconsistent, right? And anyone that has a pet knows that, you know, the incredible bond that you can develop. Anyway, the idea that a beautiful bird could come back and give some sign of hope, it reminds me of, there's a guy who meant a lot to me, Mark, and I think I'd met him twice in my life, but he was a Watergate criminal who sort of had an aha moment after the whole thing when he was on trial committed his life to God and just said, look, I, what I did was Chuck Colson. Had you ever met him or you've heard of him? No, I've never met him, but, but he, he apologized for what he did. He did true tuba repentance. And then he devoted his life to, I believe, serving prisoners in a prison. Yeah. Committed his life to trying to prison reform and an incredible legacy at that. I mean, most of his, one of his big charities was buying uh, gifts for kids of parents who were in prison, recognizing that prison sort of rips, rips away the lineage of families and uh, passing on good values. And there's just a disconnect. So anyway, amazing guy. And as you said, did what Washington, D.C., where I spent a lot of time, tells you to never do. Tell the truth, admit you were wrong. Um, and volunt- he basically chose to serve time in jail because he believed what he did in uh, being complicit in Watergate was wrong. And so he served seven months in a federal penitentiary, learned all kinds of things, and that's how he became committed to prison reform. They thought he was telling all this truth because he was, gonna, he was trying to plea bargain and, and give in more dirt on Nixon. He said, no, what I did was wrong. And it was incredible. It went against the culture. In prison, says that a bird had come outside one of the windows and he could look at this bird and had some incredible deep connection to the world, to nature, as a sign of hope. 
And it's one of the many great stories he had. When I thought of it, I just thought of this first. And, you know, some of these other stories are just incredible. Like uh, one of the prisoners says he developed a friendship and he, he said, you know, because Chuck Colson had money, he said, I'd like to give you a gift. I'd like to buy you a television. Well, this guy read books and the prisoner said, oh, no, thank you. You can waste a lot of time on those things. Guy's in prison. And he's saying, you can, you know, you'll waste too much time. He's learning. And, um, just incredible. The wisdom. He, you know, you talk about the drug war, right? The drug war was heating up over the 80s and 90s. He, he said something I'll never forget, and it shaped my whole perspective on the drug war. He said, you know, every morning in jail, in a federal penitentiary, I could smell drugs. If you can get drugs in a federal penitentiary, you can get them over a border or in any community or school in America. His point was, we got to work on the demand side. So I love Chuck Colson's stories. He had a big impact on me. Well, I mean, you, you, you're so right about how we're rediscovering what the biblical author apparently knew, which is just how intelligent animals can be and what partners they can be. The dove apparently is such a genius that it knows how to return home. So you can release the dove anywhere and it can get back to where it originated from. And that is one of the reasons why the dove is so beloved in this story is because when Noah sent the dove and it didn't return, it went home. And, uh, and we see it with homing pigeons too, which is a, a, a similar kind of animal as the dove and that the, the dove goes home. And the other interesting aspect of the dove, which is why it's uh, such an, not only such an important fact of this story, but it, it, throughout the Bible, is the dove is monogamous. It's one of the few animals that's actually monogamous. And so that really symbolizes the loyalty and fidelity that as God is recreating the world after the flood that he seeks from, uh, from all of us. And that's what it's, it's the, the dove's loyalty and fidelity compared with, with the raven, who is one of the few unkosher birds. And you look at that and you think there must be some intentional creative design there, right? This cannot be random. How do you have a penguin, you know, wobbling across uh, an, a, a glacier, reuniting, which is what they all do after the you know, feeding season, reuniting with their monogamous partner. I was at um, a place called Kiowa Island and they had this sort of exhibit where off the hotel where they had a sort of birds in there. And they had, and, and the tag said, love birds. And I realized that's a real species, it's not just a, you know, a phrase. Right, and sure enough, there's two of them and they're just sitting there together, like they're sitting six inches apart. And they, evidently they do that their whole lives. They, they remain loyal to one another. And so I see that too in the passage. I see not only a story of hope, but a story of loyalty in it, which is probably the thing that my patients value the most. You know, no one on their deathbed, Mark, tells me, and, and often they do sort of go through a litany of their proudest moments, their achievements, their regrets. And you get this incredible wisdom from talking to people at that time in their life. And no one's ever told me, you know, I wish I worked harder. I wish I would have spent less time with my daughter. No one ever, ever feels that way. When people are at that moment, what are their regrets? Well, by and large, it's, it's how they allocated their time. Usually at that time, they realize, hey, money is material. I still have time to will it to people that I love or causes that I believe in. But by and large, you can't change your time allocation in life. And I think that's looking back the theme that I, I would say in all the regrets that people sort of confess to me, if you will. And it's, you know, I wish I would have spent more time or wish I would have taken the time to mend the relationship. I have had a strained relationship with my blank brother, sister. Interesting. So, so at that moment, they wish, they, they realize that 
whatever caused the, the, the rupture or the rift was effectively overrated. Like it, it wasn't worth the pain. And they're, they're not like that, that jerk. I'm, I'm glad I separated from him. And, you know, I hope he doesn't come to the funeral. It was all, it's all dumb stuff as they describe it. You know, it was over the dumbest thing. It was, it was stuff that's immaterial. I regret, you know, think about the amount of families that get torn up over inheritance or over business ventures. You look back, you know, when you're um, getting a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, you think you care about any of that stuff? No, they realize that what we treasure in life most is loyalty, it's love, it's empathy, it's being available for people. You know, I don't have kids personally, Mark, but one of my cousins has a camp, a summer camp back in Egypt for fathers. And he, this thing has been taking off and more and more folks sign up and he expands the number of camps. And I, I tell him, why is it so popular? What, what, what's, what is this thing? And he tells me, we talk about how to love your kids. He said, you'd be amazed. We all want to do it. None of us are ever really taught how to do it. And we all make the same mistakes. For example, kids want your time, not your money. That's one of his principles. And he has, you know, uh, talks on it and people share. And they basically explain, uniformly, fathers think, my kids, I need to earn money for my kids to give them a great life. And the kids think, I just want time with, I want quality time with my dad. And this disconnect actually manifests in many ways. That's that famous song, Cat in the Cradle, right? Mm-hmm. With, you know, it's the, the son just wants time with his father and then they get older and the father wants time with the son and the son doesn't give it to him. Yeah, exactly. So it's just amazing, you know, what we value in life, we sort of recognize later in life. And you have folks that make these incredible, honest confessions late in life where they turn things around. You know, they sort of have these aha moments, which is why I'm... I'm such a fan of Chuck Colson for somebody to say, look, I was wrong. You know, people tell me, why do you like Chuck Colson so much? The guy was a Watergate criminal. And I tell, I tell them, most people in Washington, D.C. at work in government, have, you could find some criminal activity. Well, the other thing you're doing is you're saying, I'm not going to define him by his worst moment. I'm going to assess the man by the, by, by the whole breadth of his life. Yes, that was his worst moment. And you know what? He was the one who called it and admitted it. So why are we saying he's a Watergate? Why are we saying he is a Watergate criminal? That is one aspect of the many parts of his personality and character and who he was. Why are we focusing on the worst moment of his life and saying that's him? And can we get away from labels? It, it, that, you know, that's the other take home message is why do we have to label everybody? Why can't we recognize that somebody wants the best for other people? You know, not that they are this or that. If you think about the polarization of the United States. Right. It's remarkable. There's 90 plus percent consensus in the United States, I would submit to you, on all the major issues. Does anyone think it's, is a pothole a red or blue issue? No. Is corruption a red or blue? No. Regardless of political affiliation, it happens among individuals. There's uniform consensus in the United States that it's wrong or bad. And it is one of the problems that still faces this country. Waste. Is waste? Uh, no. So if you actually think about the big issue, you know, what percent of the United, of Americans would like to see fiscal responsibility with the management of our debt? 90 plus percent raise. And these are the major issues facing our country and far less so the ones that we're polarized over by the media and politicians. So I think if we think of the best in people, and this is absolutely my thesis in healthcare. If we think of the best in people, I mean, healthcare attracts the best people at every level, executives, insurance, 
those who invent medications in the pharma industry, doctors, nurses, you name it. Nobody goes into healthcare thinking, I'm going to be diabolical and you know, rip off people. No, people go into it with good intentions, and we have to remind each other of our goals. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's no word in the Hebrew for face. It's only plural faces because no one has just one face. Because no one has one, there's no point in having a word for it. It's only plural. And so, you know, your example with Chuck Colson is, is perfect. The man had faces like we all do. In the Hebrew, we say everyone has 70 faces. He had 70 faces. So why are we just saying he is one face? Because that's, that's the problem. We have faces singular as we say, that's the whole problem with apparently this new discipline that I've learned about called offense archaeology, where people go into the history of someone else's tweets or social media postings to find the worst thing they ever said or did and say that defines him as who they are, no matter what it was, no matter when it was, no matter what they've done subsequently. Well, you know, the anonymity of how we communicate promotes bad behavior, right? If, if you are in a four-way stop, for example, driving a car, and you're in a hurry and you kind of roll a stop and, and, and move on ahead of the car next to you, or the, and that car starts to move and you kind of cut the car off you can sort of move on it as long as there's no eye contact and, and find some way to justify it. But if you make eye contact and realize, oh, that's my son's piano teacher, you immediately feel accountability. You feel shame. You get out and you apologize. That's civility. And why is there civility? Because there's, you're not anonymized. There is a connection. And so social media, there's a relationship, right? And in social media, it's all anonymity-based communication. You know, in college, uh, there was a kid who sent an email. He told me, I sent an email to the university president, the food sucks here. I'm thinking, he's a nice guy. Why would you ever, he wouldn't, do you think he would ever call the office of the president of the university, set up an appointment, meet with him in person and ever talk to him like that? No. And it's this anonymity that promotes that kind of. What, what did the young man say? Oh, he said, you know, I never thought of it that way. And, and you know, I, I just feel like I'm fed up with the food here. I'm like, well, you can be fed up. You can be angry as hell, but still communicate in a civil fashion. But, you know, getting back to what you said before, I don't think you can be angry as hell because, you know, on your deathbed or you're near, near your deathbed, is that what you're going to be thinking about? Like, if we're not going to have those things exercise us on the last day, why do we have them exercise us well before the last day? I mean, you know, the, the, the Talmud says, Every day should be the last day of your life. He's like, well, I don't know when the last day is. And that's the whole point. If you lived every day like it was the last day, you actually wouldn't be supreme. Like how many people on their deathbeds are supremely annoyed by the hospital food? And I'll tell you, I, I can't tell you the number of folks who want me to talk to their, their ex-husband, ex-wife, or their estranged child, or one of their parents who they haven't spoken to in 10 years. They'll say, look, uh, we, you know, we don't, we're no longer married or we haven't spoken in 10 years as father and son, but I would like to in, involve them in these decisions. And you realize this incredible sort of reuniting that goes on at the end of, the, at the end of life. And the reason is because of that passage that you said, live every life every day as if it's the, your last. And that is a whole new way to live. And I, I have the privilege of seeing that people have that light bulb go off and think, okay, I'm going to live every day, every week as if it's my last, because it may very well be. And all of a sudden there's this liberation and you realize, hey, why don't we all do this now? Because none of us are going to be here forever. That's right. I have a, an aunt in Egypt who goes into the garbage slums with hundreds of staff that she now has in her organization. 
and they just take care and love on these kids and the families and the moms. And they've got schools now and they teach them vocational skills and they empower them and they go out and get jobs. It's an amazing project called Stephen's Children. Now, my aunt is a, I'm learning, is a human being and she's not imperfect. And I look at this organization and I think, do this, there's something here you can do much differently. And what I've learned is that everybody is their own person. You just have to learn to accept them. They, for example, have almost no administration. They have like three people running a 500-person organization. Everyone else is just all hands on deck, take care of the kids. They have no fundraising efforts. They have no business cards. They have, And I'm thinking, you guys could benefit from people knowing about this more than just word of mouth. Set up a website, set up a couple basic things. And I'm, I've learned that we're all gifted differently, right? And we all think differently. And every great person has their sort of flaws. And when we learn to accept that, when, you know, my, one of my former mentors had said, I know, Marty, you get frustrated when your assistant makes a mistake because there was a mistake. And then, you know, my business is surgical care. We, we can have zero mistakes, right? It's like sort of like being a pilot. So um, she said, I want you to recognize that whoever you work with is going to make a mistake 1% of the time and accept that ahead of time and create that as your expectation. And when there's a mistake, still be inter- interested in the mistake and try to improve on it and bring it up, but accept that baseline rate of mistakes as a way to manage your relationship with that person. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's a good word of advice. Great advice. Moving from one text to, to the next, and this is the, the final question we always ask is, um, the next text is um, Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he says, um, I just ran into a man with whom I had served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Marty, in all your years as a surgeon and as a public intellectual, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, I agree that you do see regression, even at late stages of life, back into childhood. And that's healthy. That's okay. And I think what we do in society is put up a facade because that's the expectation of being strong and uniform and linear and having a sort of consistent personality. The reality is we like seeing all of somebody's personality because we relate to it. If you take Katie Couric, for example, this is a principle in media. If you show all of your personality, people like you more. Okay, look at Oprah. She's intellectual and she's struggling with her weight and she's giddy and goofy and fun and serious. And people connect with that. Why? Because they feel like I'm like that. And Here's somebody like me, Katie Couric. Or Bill, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, good example. You know, his, yeah, his, his flaws were uh, wildly abundant and people loved him all the more for them. And I think they related a little bit to that. You know, like I'm very proud of who I am, but I do have, you know, a struggle and I'm okay with somebody else being open about it. I think there, there's this sort of connection. Katie Couric, you know, on the Today Show was probably one of the most popular people in the United States. You saw all of her personality, right? You saw her reading the news and serious and then smitten and then having fun at a little concert and cooking and making mistakes and laughing and personable. You saw all of her. Then she goes to the CBS Evening News and all you're seeing is one dimension, reading the news series. And all of a sudden people are like, I'm not interested anymore. Like, who is she? What? She didn't change as a person. You just saw less. And so I think part of 
being relatable, part of being effective is to be vulnerable and honest about all of your personality, including the, the child in all of us. And that's the piece you see late in life where people have that regression to childhood. Right. Now, one thing is interesting you said is um, I didn't realize people would talk to their doctor about their most sensitive vulnerabilities. I, f- I figured they would talk to their priest or their somebody that they, they actually talk to their doctor. You know, what I found, Mark, is that one of the biggest public health crises in the United States today is a problem that nobody is talking about that we need to talk about, and that is loneliness. And they have all of these feelings and emotions, and they want to talk to somebody who will listen. And I think that's the ultimate destination of who they'll talk to, who will listen. And if they have, you know, a priest or rabbi or or someone who will listen, they have a best friend who will listen. If they have a doctor's ear who will listen, they will talk. It's one of those things where I think if you make yourself available, it's amazing. You know, if I look back on a, you know, a struggle that I went through in life, and I see now people who go through the same struggle, it's a very common struggle, and I see them struggling with it, I immediately reach out to them and I just say, hey, I, I've been through this. I know what you're, you might be dealing with, or at least I might have some experience with this, although it may not be the same. I'm happy to chat anytime. And it's amazing. People sometimes will just unload. And they're just, you know, if you think about some of the hardest times in our lives, there are moments when we would talk to anybody who would listen. And I see that with our country's seniors. I see that with those who are ill. Um, We have a society that's increasingly insular. And I believe we are created to be communal. I believe that God made us to be part of communities. I think communities are powerful. And I think when you don't have that, that loneliness does affect your physiologic reserves. It affects your body in so many ways in terms of health. And we are made for community. But society is basically now all individual. You have your personal this, personal that. You have your personal trainer. You put your earphones in and you go work out without any interaction with anybody. You have your personal favorite spots for this dessert and this Everything is your personal this. And guess what? After all that personal, individual, your personal living space, your personal this and that, people are hungry for community. And that's why you're seeing, I think, a, a surge in these, in these um, what they call shared businesses or community businesses, be it you know, Zipcar, or Airbnb, or you name it, this whole new WeWork, this whole new market that's been created from the demand that people are hungry for some community. Absolutely. I mean, it, the term not good is only used twice in the Bible. It is not good for man to live alone, God to Adam, and it is not good for man to lead alone effectively, which is Mo, uh, Jethro to Moses. So it's it's both times the thing that's not good is to be alone. And getting you're so right about the public health. I believe that last year was the first year in history when the United States expected mortality rate decreased for three years in a row. And one of the doctors that we work with in Africa told me, it's all attributable to diseases of despair, which is a function of loneliness. Why is it that a, when a, a married couple has one of the individuals pass away, the other one often passes away soon after? I mean, that is a phenomenon that is statistically very different from two individuals who don't know each other passing away. And there is something to the physiologic reserve that is higher in people with community. And that community, you know, for me is, is uh, my church. It's my massive family, which I'm fortunate to be nested in. And it's 
the housemates that I have because I, I just don't like the idea of living alone and we have a great time. And so as much community as we can create in life, I think the more fulfillment we can have. Because, you know, when I was looking at different churches, I thought, ah, I don't like this church for this reason. I don't like that church for that reason. And then someone told me, think about what you can contribute. You know, I see rabbis and pastors show up in the hospital. God bless them. They're there with the, these tough issues and patients. That is the power of community, right? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to think about what I can contribute, not what I'm getting out of church. And that made the whole experience so much different. Did that influence your choice of church in the end? Yeah, absolutely. Because I thought, where are people that I enjoy? And, you know, if the singing or sermons or whatever aren't perfect, guess what? It's so much more than the teaching. You can get teaching from a number of sources. It's the community, it's the people, and it's what you can contribute as much as it is what you're getting out of an organization. Well, Marty, thank you so much for, as always, such a fascinating conversation. And maybe if does your, you mentioned that your aunt's work, which I know is sacred work with children in the slums of Cairo, um, you mentioned it doesn't have much administration, but does it have a, does it have any website or any place where if people want to support it, they could go? After 25 plus years, we finally got a website up called stevenschildren.org, or you can Google Stevens Children. Her name's Mama Maggie, and it's um, one of the books that I wrote was a, I co-authored with Ellen Vaughn, who was actually a, a biographer of Chuck Colson. Ellen Vaughn and I wrote a, a book about her called Mama Maggie. And she's a Nobel Prize winning uh, nominee, Nobel Peace Prize, right? She's been nominated a few times, yeah. Well, uh, God bless her and her work, and God bless you. And uh, thank you for coming on, and thank you for your friendship. Great, Mark. Thanks so much. Good to see you.